0: This episode is a rebroadcast from March of 2023 and the third part of the Liberation Martial Arts Primer on Palestine. For those looking for a liberatory martial arts pedagogy and curriculum, we've created Liberation Martial Arts. Thanks to Mariah Terry, Big Plop, Christian Cordova, and Ray Friedman for signing up. You can sign up for Liberation Martial Arts through our website at southpawpod.com. This will also give you access to uncut versions of our shows without breaks or interruptions, plus early access to our bonus shows, Fighters Brew and SDS-9. This is Sam. And this is Southpaw. This episode was sponsored by SH, Alejandro, RJ, Thomas, Rachel, Berkshire People's Gym, and New Guy. Sponsors not only get a mention on every episode, but also a monthly training session with me. Sign up on Patreon. On this episode of Southpaw, we have Palestinian solidarity activist, writer, and wrestling coach, Sam Stein. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. Uh, Looking forward to doing this. Can you tell us about your background and your journey from growing up in an Orthodox Jewish Republican household to becoming a Palestinian solidarity activist?
1: Definitely. Yeah, I grew up, um, like I said, in a very right-wing community, kind of very insular. Um, you know, that was just all I knew. Never really thought of much about it. Um, the thing that was kind of different is that there were, there were always things that I I was always more progressive naturally. Um, there was always a certain degree of homophobia and racism that I identified in my community and in the people around me that I could have from a young age articulate and say, "Oh, you know, that was racist, that was homophobic, whatever it is. but there are certain things that I was exposed to growing up. They didn't have the tools or the language to refute um, and just incorporate them into my ideology for a long time. Um, An example that pops into my head was I really believed in like bootstrap theory growing up. Um, because it's something that you have to actually learn a theory and be educated to refute. It's not, you know, if somebody says like a racial slur or some horrible thing, then you don't even need to know anything to be like, oh, that was that was racist. Um and certain things that get um, you know, a cut deeper, you do need that extra knowledge to even refute. Um and that was just kind of in general, something always holding me back until I kind of got to college and was able to explore these things more independently. Um, Specifically in the context of Palestine, that was always kind of a blind spot in terms of my otherwise more progressive leanings. Like that was really something, you know, like Zionism in Israel was something where I really just internalized what I was raised on because I had no... Proper understanding of the alternative and zero exposure to that frame of thinking at all. And then, uh, when after I finished high school, I did a gap year um, in my community. Growing up, it was pretty much you know the standard that after high school you do a gap year, spending a year learning in the yeshiva, um, in a, like a Jewish school of Torah. In Israel, and I went to this program called Michinat Yeyud that was actually, I didn't know what this meant at the time or obviously what their applications were, but it was in an illegal settlement in the West Bank, um, obviously not even beginning to unpack that. It's all illegitimate and based on ethnic cleansing, but, you know, this is like in the very blatant sense of the word, occupied. Um, And I didn't know what that meant, didn't really think about it too much, Um, and just enjoyed my year. And there were definitely things that I saw over the course of that year that kind of made an impression on me. I was like, hey, wait, that's weird. Something messed up there. Um, The examples that come to mind are that Palestinians in the West Bank had different um, license plates than Israeli citizens do, and that the checkpoint going um, from the West Bank into, uh, you know, the 48 territories, um, you only actually get checked in one direction. So if you're going from internationally recognized Israel into the West Bank, then you just drive right in. And it's only when you drive out that there's any sort of quote unquote security protocol because they don't care, care about keeping Israelis out of the West Bank, they only care about keeping Palestinians out of the rest of the region. Um, and I don't know how to impact that at all. Um, and I was kind of just, um, you know, not to give myself too much an out, but it was just like a dumb 18 year old that was like, I'm not thinking about this stuff. I'm going to enjoy my year and then go to college and never think about it again. Um, and then I got to college and one of my best friends, started kind of talking a lot more about this stuff and using the word occupation a lot. And to me, that was always a word that the only time up until that point I'd ever heard the word occupation was some crazy rabbi of mine telling me why it didn't exist and why it wasn't a real thing. Or even I vividly remember a rabbi saying to me, Israel is occupied by Arabs. Uh, They never said Palestinian. They completely erased Palestinian identity. It's always just matters. And my friends started talking about these things a lot more, and that was kind of the first time I had to be like, I always was told that this whole notion is anti-Semitic, and I really, really don't think that my best friend, who is to this day still Orthodox and who I'm still incredibly close with and who learned in a Jewish yeshiva in Jerusalem for two years, is in So that was kind of like the first break in the dam. And after that, for a few years, there was a slow process of me grappling with these things. And then I remember towards the end of my time in college, um, this Palestinian man came to speak at my college. It's funny, I don't even remember what he spoke about and what like, the broader context of his presentation was, but he was from Bethlehem. And that really resonated with me at the time because the settlement I lived in, a settlement called Efrat, is right next to Bethlehem. And I remember very, very naively thinking, oh, we were neighbors, um, as if you could be neighbors, you know, when you live on different sides of a giant apartheid wall. And then at at some point during his presentation, he he mentioned all of the, um, like the permit processes he had to go through. To get permission to go from the West Bank to Jordan and fly from Jordan to the US. And I was just like, wait, you have to what? Like I lived right next to you, wasn't born there in the exact same spot and can just go about wherever I wanted. And that was really the point of no return for me. Um, and then after college, I basically, after some stuff in between that I'm sure we'll get to more later, but basically decided to move back here and like throw myself into the solidarity work and try, you know, actually uh, do what I can to change things. And for the past three years, that has involved a lot of joining Palestinian Shepherds in the West Bank and just. Uh, being there because unfortunately, just having a white skinned Jew around you know makes a huge difference in terms of um, protection from violence from settlers and or the army, and a lot of documentation a lot of Palestinians you know have mentioned this to me like very um, that they'll say over and over again, like share our reality, share our story um something you know there's so much pro-Israeli propaganda um, peddled both by Israel itself and by the West broadly and the U.S. and that imperial empire. Um, and obviously Palestinians have taken this on themselves as well. Um, you know, like Palestinian, a lot of different Palestinian activists and Palestinian communities have been incredibly active on social media and like the prominence of social media. Something that has really changed the the way that the average Westerner views the reality here. Um, And yeah, that's what I've been doing for the past three years. And more recently, that's involved a lot more writing about my experiences, both on social media and in more formal contexts and trying to do what I can to shed some light on the reality that way.
0: Have you met other American... Palestinian solidarity activists like yourself?
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm very thankful to be part of a strong community of American- Palestinian solidarity activists, or American or broadly international, um, spending various amounts of time here, um, largely Jewish, um, but not always, which is, you know something that's been very interesting because the vast, vast majority of us are coming from this place of unlearning Zionism.
0: So then that's a common theme you've run into with the international community where a lot of them, like you, grew up thinking one way and then slowly started to change their opinion about it, had to unlearn a lot of their thinking. And maybe like you, a lot of it came from like intuition, like something doesn't feel right. Something feels off.
1: Yeah, definitely. I would say that even within that paradigm, I'm probably a more extreme case, both in terms of growing up far more right wing than a lot of my friends in this movement and this community. Um, a lot of my friends coming from similar situations, you know, are coming from backgrounds where they were kind of broadly liberal and still had a lot to relearn and unlearn to become really more radical left. Um sometimes, you know, liberal on everything except for Palestine, which is unfortunately especially for my generation, you know, hopefully it'll change very very soon, but a very common paradigm um in the American Jewish community to be like very liberal or even left and then have a complete blind spot when it comes to Palestine. Um and another reason that I think I'm a more extreme example. Is that I grew up spending a lot of time in the region um, with my family. We we would come every other year, and I have a lot of extended family here. Um, so, and a lot of my you know friends and partners in activism who grew up on a very Zionist narrative. Had to unlearn that, but maybe hadn't spent time here entrenched in that way.
0: And since you've been thinking about this a lot, and maybe your definitions have changed over time, how would you simply define Zionism?
1: Um, that's such a good, like, important question because it's something that gets obfuscated so much, it's spe- specifically in. Um, in the Jewish radical left, there's this acronym PEP, which stands for Progressive Except Palestine. Um, and in that sphere of things, there's this complete obfuscation of what Zionism is. It's like, oh, Zionism is just the belief in Jewish self-determination or the belief that there is Jewish history in this region that, um, And those of us on the left understand that that is not true. Zionism as a political ideology started in the late 1800s. Um, at first there were competing strains about it on like what exactly it would be, but basically all of them revolved around starting a Jewish ethnostate in Palestine. Um, and there were debates on like how much quite frankly, on how much ethnic cleansing that would involve. And the, the theory of Zionism that won out in the sense of like Zionism is what it has been and what it has done um, was, was the theory propagated by Theodor Herzl, who was a Jewish intellectual and thinker from Central Eastern Europe. His vision for Zionism was a Jewish nationalism ident- identical to the wave of nationalism that was happening at the time in white Western society Europe. And it was, you know, we're going to emulate that and create an ethnostate in Palestine. And he used the words colonialism and, you know, literally said we are going to carry out colonialism in Palestine and kick out the Natives, the Arabs, whatever language he used to refer to the Palestinian community.
0: I was speaking to a mutual friend of ours and our very own wrestling consultant for Southpaw and Fight Study, Zach Goldrosen. And he was telling me about how, to your point, there was this anti-Semitic Christian Criticism against Jewish people that they had no loyalty to a land. They were not loyal to Europe or the countries they were living in. And so Zionism then took that criticism and were like, no, we are very nationalistic and loyal to a country and to this ethno state, Israel. His point was they took this anti Semitic criticism and then adopted it and then now are inverting it where if you don't agree with that, then you're anti-Semitic or you're a self-hating Jew.
1: Yeah, I think that's completely spot on. Um, I'll definitely say growing up, from my experience growing up um, as an Orthodox Jew in the New York area, where obviously you know there's a broad spectrum of what growing up Jewish in the US looks like. Um, for me we were very explicitly told you are not loyal to the us we don't belong here you are loyal to israel um and that comes a lot from this place of of trauma um in my community you know that was a lot of almost everyone my age your grandparent at the latest uh, came fleeing persecution in Europe. So there's this deep, deep internalized trauma of like, we don't belong in these places. These places don't want us and don't trust us. And the next Holocaust is around the corner. And the only safety for us is in the modern state of Israel. Um, and we're also seeing the embracement of that in you know the, the far right and then the republican party how every you know every month a uh, republican will say something horribly anti-semitic and then basically say oh but i love israel and there are there's a giant population of the right-wing jewish community that to them that's a valid apology and um trump you know had a million different things that he said of basically calling the state of Israel, our country, um, in whatever different context it was. And you basically have this very, like, funny and horrific divide in American Jewry of some of the community calling that out for the anti-Semitism that it is. And then the far-right Jewish community just being like, yeah, he's right.
0: A note to our listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at salpawpod.com. Now, tell us about how you got into wrestling and what drew you to it.
1: Yeah, I was in, uh, I started wrestling in 10th grade. And one of my my best friends growing up in like middle school and throughout all of high school, we we went from the same middle school to the same high school and he knew right away, like the school has a wrestling team, ninth grade, I'm joining the wrestling team, and that's gonna be, you know, like ninety percent, like that's gonna be my hobby and I'm gonna put a ton of time into that. And he was someone that was already very athletic and outdoorsy and on other sports teams in middle school. And basically knew that that was, he was going to like switch all of that outlet into wrestling. Um, and I was not like that <laughs> going into high school. You know, I played sports like when I had to, and wasn't even like horrible, but would just get bored after 20, 30 minutes was not something I could do for any extended period of time and he spent all of ninth grade basically trying to convince me to join the team with him. And you fast forward a year and I'm like kind of like, all right, fine, I'll give it a shot. Um and for basically the first year I was wrestling, I think it was just, yeah, this is fun enough that I haven't quit yet. I'll keep going. And then after that first season was when it kind of became this thing that I was really passionate about. Um, I think the biggest thing that drew me to it was having like very intense ADHD and never being able to do the same thing for a very long time. Just for the first time, being like, oh, I could do this forever. Like, I, you know, practice ends and I'm like going to collapse from exhaustion. But mentally, I'm like, yo, let's keep going. I still want to do this.
0: You can never have the same match twice.
1: Yeah, definitely. That was, yeah, that was a huge part of it. Especially like I have an identical twin brother. um, And we're obviously, you know, almost the exact same size. So we would just practice each other. um, In in practice, drill and go live with each other and then get home and be like, wait, I want to try something. Like, wait, let me try this. No, no, you let me try this. And just like do that in a room or outside for hours. And I think beyond that, something that drove me to it was just kind of, you know, similar in the same vein of just the intensity. And for the first time, kind of having something that I was doing to get better. It was like, oh, I want to perfect this craft. And that feeling of... It's funny because I feel like so many of these things are like stereotypically you know, mentioned by the chuds in these sports. And I do think that there is value in them. It's just that they've been completely co-opted. And for me, one of those things was just that feeling of it's not, uh, there's a team aspect, but it's just you and the other wrestler. If you won, it was because of you and no one can take that away from you. And if you lost, then you know what you need to work on. And that's it. Keep going
0: the lesson is much more direct, right? I think a lot of it isn't even about individualism because what attracted me to martial arts, I initially used to think was individualism, but then that was like the only answer I knew because that's what all the chuds told me. But in looking back, I'm like, no, everything I accomplished, I needed this team. We're sharing a space and learning together and we're a support system. It's very much like political organizing, which I wrote about recently. What's different than other team sports is that if something happens, right? If I see this as a learning process and if something happens that doesn't go the way we want, then when it's wrestling or boxing or martial arts and it's one-on-one, then the lesson is much more direct. I have much more direct feedback. I know exactly what was wrong. Whereas if it's a team element and we don't do well, it's much more obfuscated. It's harder to tell what went wrong. You know something went wrong and it's also easy to individualize and just blame certain people, but there's probably an issue before you even got to the point where you could blame somebody. But the thing is, because there's so many other variables, then it's hard to decipher, right? So for somebody who likes instant feedback, who likes things to make sense, maybe it also has to do with our brains. That direct feedback is much more appealing than. Team sports, which needs a lot of analytics, right? That's why team sports has so much analytics because you don't need that so much with individual sports, even though analytics helps, but it's not as useful because it's much more apparent what needs to be improved on, what the learning lessons are. And I think that's what really attracts us is that direct feedback.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so spot on, uh, especially the part of, you know, the almost like false individualism. Um, and you have your teammates, you know, I mentioned having my twin brother and I still think of my 12th grade wrestling coach as this person who still has like such a huge impact on me and someone that's still so dear to my heart.
0: Tell us about your wrestling club and how that came about, because that's how you and I first connected when you were raising money for maths.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was, um, I think I'd already been following you on Twitter for a bit. And um, you know, rewinding a bit, um, as soon as I got here, I knew that um, that I, I had the idea for a while of incorporating wrestling into my activism. For that, in that kind of way, uh, basically two years ago, I did in the spring of 2021. I participated in this project called Kinenu, um which is Hebrew for here we are or we're here um something to that effect it's organized by this organization called the center for jewish Nonviolence. shout out to them they do incredible incredible work and kinenu very true to its name is a three-month intensive solidarity project where you live in the in the different palestinian villages um specifically in a region called the South Hebron Hills, or Masafriata, is uh, what is called in Arabic. And over the, these three months, you are learning Arabic, joining the shepherds in the field, just helping out with different work projects around the village. You know, basically whatever is needed, you're there to do it. Um, and to me, it's it's this incredible mixture of praxis and doing real direct action on the ground and this almost this notion of like peace and personal connection that is very often defanged and like why can't we all just get along? But in this radical context of, you know, it's not coexistence, it's co-resistance. We are in this struggle together and us as, you know, part of the privileged group doing everything we can to help in this struggle. And over the course of the three, three months, you obviously form really personal relationships with the community, with the people that you're living with. And before I even, going into that experience, um, I had the idea of starting a wrestling club there for the kids and over the course of Hinenu, it never actually materialized. Um, and then it kind of stuck in my head and I I was still going to the area all the time after that. And then I remember um, one day I was hanging out with a friend of mine and a bunch of like, like much younger kids are with us. And I'm just like to my friend, I'm like, oh, well, what would you think about me starting a wrestling club for the kids? And... He was like, Yeah, that'd be a cool idea. And then he looks at the kids and, you know, says very quickly in Arabic that I wasn't able to follow at the time. Something that was clearly, you know, oh, what do you think about Sam teaching you guys how to wrestle? And I didn't understand or remember how the kids answered, but they basically all started enthusiastically screaming and trying to tackle me. <laughs> um, so I, I got my answer pretty quickly. Um, and then basically got started on fundraising, which is obviously where Southpaw plays into the picture. Um, I'd already been following you um, and like the Southpaw account on Twitter, um, as well as Zach Goldrosen, and kind of was just pulling out all the stops. You know, It's like anyone who I think will even slightly resonate with this project. I'm just going to shoot my shot and DM them about it and send them the GoFundMe link and see what happens. And, you know, you guys were all great and super helpful in reaching that goal. And then I I got the money. I got the mat. It took forever to get here. And a friend had to, you know, help me out with his big van to drive it from Jerusalem all the way to Masafriata. But we did it. And it's been awesome. You know, we, we, finally, I think I started the fundraising in like August of 2021 and had the mat in April of 2022. So it's now been almost a full year.
0: Did your wrestling work also open your eyes more?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of, it just helped me, you know, you know, it was an avenue for me to spend even more time in the community than I already had been, and obviously specifically with the younger kids, um, and seeing the way they interact with things. And it's been great for my Arabic because the adults all speak to me in English. The kids don't <laughs> hold like, you know, they don't hold back. They just speak to me how they speak to everyone. Uh, so I get really unfiltered of like, their Arabic and their dialect and their slang. Which has been a really uh, meaningful connection. And kind of seeing of how, right away is just so obvious, oh, I can't just go down and run the kind of practice that I would be used to running in like the New York high school, where this is... Um, a, mostly younger kids, some kids close to that age age, but mostly much, much younger kids, and B, a different social context, a different reality. Um, most of these kids have never been on a structured sports team like that. They, they're they very active, um, either because they're helping their parents work all the time or because they play a lot of soccer. Um, but i kind of realized right away that it was not going to be you know this like no nonsense structured practice uh so it's been very free form um which has been great and just i had to uh, you know it also affected how i think about wrestling because i had to because of language barrier um couldn't dive into explaining a move for 10 minutes and i just had to really stick to very core fundamental concepts that I can explain in, in, you know, less than a sentence where it's like elbows in tight or like low stance or whatever it is.
0: Are you doing this by yourself or do you also have other wrestling coaches helping you?
1: Um, It is as far as actual wrestling coaches, It has just been me. Um, I definitely have had, you know, help and resources. A friend of mine who is spending some time here and is also involved in the activist community in the palestinian solidarity cause Um, was a very good wrestler in new york um, himself when he was in high school and he came down once and just you know had an extra set of hands and it was really fun and just having a new face got the kids really into it and every now and then if there is an adult who speaks english who's around to help me translate, then I can get it more into the, you know, into the thick of things about it. But it is largely just, in terms of coaching, it has just been me.
0: And since you're building this up from scratch and there's no prior conditioning to this type of training, are you finding that you're also doing a lot of games with the kids to try to use games to teach wrestling principles? or are you doing just a lot of drilling?
1: Yeah, just a lot of drilling and showing, um, and kind of, you know, a lot of times it's almost closer to an open mat than a practice. Of just, I roll the mats, like, you know, okay, go, just wrestle, just go. And like, as they're going, it'll be like, hey, you better if you do it like this, you better if you do it like this, and just throw tips in there. Which I think has also been, a You know, these are much younger kids, so it's better for them in that sense to just play and like, I'll give them little pointers. And if at any point they want to get more serious about it, then great. And if not, then also great. And I think it's very important for their specific context of these kids that are so young and already dealing with so much more stress and trauma than any person should have to forget, you know, kids their age of living under military occupation. I think just the physical stress release. has, I hope, been, you know, a very positive outlet for them.
0: You also wrote about wrestling and privilege. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, that was something, you know, that I was, like, confronted with very quickly, of just the obstacles. Um, Wrestling thinks of itself as the true meritocracy, and I'm sure this comment in other combat sports. Um, You know, all you need is shoes and a mat. You know, you just that's all you need and work hard and anybody can wrestle because of weight classes. It doesn't matter what your build is. You don't need to be tall like basketball or big like football. Um, And I started this club right away and remember fine, all those things might be true to a point, but there's the immediate privilege and um, in the context of the fact that I'm in Palestine and there's, You know, very little robust wrestling league and culture. And if you're in, you know, the caucuses in Russia or New Jersey or Iowa, these wrestling hotbeds, then you're going to get better because the people around you are also doing the sport very passionately and with a whole robust history and standard of technique around them and then that's you know just broader broadly in the con in the context of palestine and more specifically things that you never even have to think about i I practice outside if it rains we can't have practice that's not something that any american wrestling club or wrestling team deals with absolutely yeah no matter how underprivileged they are in other aspects Um, even if it's just too cold, you know, that I'm not reasonably going to make these five or six-year-olds or seven or eight-year-olds practice outside when it's freezing. And they don't have running water. um, All the water in the village comes from rain cisterns and some farther away wells. I can't clean the mat as much as I need to. Um, And that, you know, creates a giant difficulty. And then even beyond that, something that is less of a privilege in the very contemporary sense in terms of it's something that's almost on my end. And obviously in the broader context of things, I'm incredibly privileged, but um, I live in Jerusalem. It's an hour to an hour and a half drive from the Riyata, depending on traffic. And there's, there's no practical way to get there by public transportation. And thankfully, I, we have practice every single Wednesday, And thankfully, I have a friend that also drives from Jerusalem to Masafriata every single Wednesday, and she's been able to give me rides, you know, a giant percentage of the time. It's been a huge, huge help. Sometimes if her car is full for whatever reason, or she's going too early or too late or not going, then boom, we're missing practice that week.
0: And something both you and Zach have talked about is how wrestling is even becoming more cost prohibitive, even in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. With these private wrestling clubs to private training and coaching. I know where I live. I was looking into some wrestling clubs and all the ones I could find were all private. And then I looked at their tuition and it was more expensive than Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Not like the top end Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but the average cost of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was more expensive. And I was like, I don't remember wrestling being like this and I wonder if they also took a page from the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu neoliberal playbook.
1: Yeah, definitely. And obviously that's, you know, the um, underbelly of meritocracy and rising grind is capitalism. And we're going to charge as much as we can get away with. Um, my my brother coaches in New York now and his season just ended. And we were like talking about, you know, what his, his um, goals and, ide- and like hopes are for his team moving forward and I started like looking around for camps that might be good for, for his kids. I'm just, you know, kind of exactly what you said where I'm just looking at these camps and just I'm like, Oh, right. These are all crazy expensive. And you know, who knows if any of these poor parents can afford these camps in the first place. And even if they can maybe afford them are willing to, or think it's advisable to pay for them. And that's already at, um, you know, entry level, not kids that are hoping on getting scholarships. And once you get to that level, it becomes about having enough money to go to all the best camps and clinics during the off season, and fly to all the best tournaments in the off season, so that you can actually get exposure and get a scholarship. You know, there might be some kid who's the wrestling champion like state champion in Alabama, which is in the context of the U.S., not a state with um, a lot of wrestling talent. And you could be the state champion of Alabama and no college cares about that. And this kid might be just as good as or better than state champions in historically very tough wrestling states like California or Iowa or New Jersey. And nobody knows because he can't afford to go to these big name tournaments where the coaches will actually see it.
0: Yeah, I recently posted on social media about how this old idea that the poorest, hungriest kid becomes like the best athlete or the best combat sport athlete even, right? And I think that's becoming less and less true to all the points you made. Now, because of the neoliberal capitalism coming into sports, and neoliberal, I mean, privatization, you really do need money to get the right type of training, the right training partners, enough reps, enough hours of practice, enough games or enough matches. All those things cost money and it's costing more and more money. It's becoming more and more cost prohibitive. So really, if you look at the stats more and more, it isn't going to be the poorest kids rising to the top anymore. Those will be more of the outliers it's not really about your hunger or how much you want it. It's going to be about access and privilege. And maybe it's not going to be the richest kids per se, but it's going to be the ones who can just afford the bare minimum of what you need to be successful in any sport or even martial art.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you might've mentioned this on the, on the last episode you did, but you know, of people talking about poverty this in this romantic way it's this fire that forges you and the always the capitalist undertone is that it's something you'll pull yourself out of and it will make you tougher and even if you do you know struggle and claw your way out of poverty all that poverty did is not some fire that forged you 99.9% of the time it was a traumatic experience that had a horrible effect on your mental health.
0: If you love the Southpaw project, become one of our financial supporters. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. We can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. You also mentioned how you took a Krav Maga class. And this is a topic we talk about a lot, which is how whether Krav Maga is effectively taught in the West or not isn't important because it's more of an ideology. There's a great article by Elsa Dorland that covers this called Genealogy of Krav Maga, which is an excerpt from the book Self-Defense, A Philosophy of Violence, from Verso Books. I'll link both in the show notes. But when you took Krav Maga in Israel, they really made explicit the ideology. Can you tell us what the experience was like?
1: Yeah, um, my Gap Year program had Krav Maga classes uh, once a week or once every other week or whatever it was. Um, and what's funny is that that was something that drove me to the program in the first place from a completely apolitical perspective, um, I mean, from my perspective apolitical obviously it's not apolitical um just you know oh cool they'll you know i'll be able to be active and explore more martial arts and combat sports and kind of keep going and building off of wrestling in that kind of way um and there were times where i enjoyed it there were times where you know just like practicing some punches and basically doing muay thai like very, very basic Muay Thai in a bag and these like knife arm, uh knife disarming maneuvers that felt like the technical aspect of wrestling that I liked of oh you move your body in very specific ways. Um but obviously all that machismo and you know maybe the way they suck people in a lot of times is just that appeal to if you like combat sports or martial arts, or if you like masculinity and want to embrace it that way. And it, it was at this facility that literally builds itself as I, I think they call themselves a counter-terrorist training facility, something, you know, completely euphemistic and absurd in that direction. Um, where. Half the time, um, we we would have, you know, these very simple boxing lessons and these knife disarmments. And then other times, we would have shooting lessons where you're literally shooting a target that's a Palestinian man wearing a Kofia and holding a knife. Um, So very outwardly racist. And that was definitely, you know, rewinding a bit when I said that there were always things that during my year in the settlement, where I was like, oh, this is messed up. Um, that was definitely one that jumped out at me. I remember there was one day where we had this very thorough, you know, quote-unquote counterterrorism um, practice uh, exercise, or whatever you want to call it, where we're basically like LARPing as Israeli forces and doing a, you know, quote-unquote arrest where you're just invading a home. <laughs> And before that day, the instructor is like, oh, this is a very big, serious day. And we're going to be very strict on the rules today. He's he's wearing this. The only way I can describe this thing is it looks like if somebody had modded an AK-47 to hold BB pellets as its ammunition, uh, just this insane BB gun, basically, and says, you know, we're very strict today if if um, if anyone doesn't listen to my rules, then I'm going to shoot you. And to show that I'm not messing around, I'm going to shoot you all now. And right there on the spot, he shot every single one of us with this BB gun. Um, like I think in the leg, I don't remember. And that was kind of like, that was something that like at the time I was like, oh, that was abusive. Um, I'm like a more, you know, I wasn't able to just shove that out of my brain in the same way. Um, and yeah, you know, you just see it's, it's all, the goal of this program was first and foremost to get us to join the Israeli army. And that was a crucial part of the socialization of that goal.
0: And this touches back to genealogy of Krab Maga where it talks about how Whether you go to one class or another, what they teach might be completely different. But oftentimes, there is this shared ideology of kill or be killed. And that instructor made clear, those are the stakes. I will shoot you, right? It is going to be like that. And so there is no reasoning. There is no peace. I must kill for myself to survive. Like that is the mindset that often, even a lot of self-defense classes teach. And even when you're talking about disarming somebody who has a knife. Self-defense classes here, Krav Maga here, right? It's often tacitly saying that person that you're taking the knife from is not a white person. And if you're white, it's not going to be another white person. You're taking it from some racialized other. Even if they don't explicitly say it, and often they do actually explicitly say it, but even if they don't, you know, that's what they tacitly mean. And so probably in this class, when they're doing everything right, what you're learning, they're like, Yeah, you're not going to be disarming another white Jewish person. You're going to be disarming a Palestinian person. And then when you're shooting the Palestinian cutouts, then it's made explicit what this is really about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is explicit from the get go. And kind of something that you've um, that's been mentioned on the pod before is how shallow all of the dialogue around self-defenses first of all in the way that you already mentioned that it's always racialized either um overtly or more implicitly and furthermore just disregards all of the data we have around violence and assault that's going to come from somebody you know And even if you were to, you know, create this scenario of um, disarming a stranger with a knife, and even if you were to not racialize that, you're already not accurately portraying the violence that we know is most typical. And I'll also say that you know, just in terms of the socialization of this facility and of our problem, God classes, you know, just as much as instilling that kill or be killed mentality it was about instilling the soldiers follow orders mentality that was something that i heard over and over again on this gap year you know they pose you some supposedly difficult hypothetical that is basically your commander tells you to do something completely horrific and it's oh what do you do you don't you don't can't disobey your commander you're a soldier you follow orders and in the context of you know this crop of instructor shooting us with that BB gun, the context, the, the moral is very clear of you listen to me because I'm your commander.
0: So basically you're being taught to override your moral compass or for you, your intuitions, right? Because you're somebody who always had some sense of like, hey, some of this stuff, I don't have words for it yet, but this is wrong. And it's almost like they know some people are like that. And they're like teaching you, to ignore that.
1: Yeah, 100%.
0: How do your friends back home or your family or just other people in the West react to your change and your current views?
1: Um, man, that's, we can do a whole another podcast on just that. Um, there's been something that I've observed. First of all, I mentioned this at the beginning, but one of my best friends was kind of my avenue into really finding the language to explore this. Stuff more deeply. Um, And I have a group of friends that I've been very close with since high school that were all now leftists and they've been very vocally supportive of everything I'm doing. Uh, My twin brother is very supportive. My other family members are (laughs) much less supportive. And you get the whole spectrum of family members that try and argue with me, family members that institute the we don't talk about politics rule. Um, I've noticed something very gendered and um, related to gender and sexuality in the way that I have the blowback or lack thereof that I've dealt with. I get annoying uh, argumentative Facebook comments and DMs. And that's, you know, frustrating and annoying, but that's mostly been the end of it. And then I talk to a lot of women or non-men or not hetero men that went through the same learning and unlearning and same kind of political journey and realization that I went through. And I just, they tell me about these horrific DMs that they get all the time. Um, So it's very not lost on me that as a hetero
0: man, I've been let off easy. Not just with this topic, but whenever you become more communistic, more communitarian, more empathetic, more caring of others, there's always this criticism that you're not a real man, right? And I think that's probably part of all of this too. There's always this toxic masculinity element that always intertwines itself with racism, with white supremacy, Zionism, and other forms of bigotry.
1: Yeah, definitely. And Zionism, like so much of the earliest Zionist propaganda was embracing this masculinity. Uh, there was this trope of the old Jew and the new Jew. The old Jew, you know, supposedly um, really in line with anti-Semitic caricatures of the effeminate Jew, went like sheep to the slaughter. They didn't resist or anything and just let the Holocaust happen. And the new Jew is the one who went to Palestine with guns to create their homeland and was going to defend their homeland. And you have this big burly Israeli guys holding rifles.
0: You're talking directly about muscular Judaism also.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you you know, it it literally is internalized anti-Semitism, which is like the deep irony in a lot of Zionist propaganda is that so much of it clearly piggybacks off of anti-Semitic tropes.
0: Because there was already muscular Christianity. So it's, again, taking the criticism and then adopting it.
1: Yeah. We're gonna become like the uh the Europeans. They're all doing nationalism and <laughs> settler colonialism, so now we're gonna
0: do it. And then as far as the reactions you've gotten, some of the backlash, where do you think that's coming from?
1: I think it's almost a shock and disbelief. Um yeah, there's kind of this especially in like the much more right wing and much more insular parts of the Jewish community, it's it's unthinkable. You know, you might stop observing um, religious Judaism and, you know, stop praying or keeping kosher or whatever it is. But no, you, you, you always have to be a good Zionist. And I think a lot of people see my posts and are just in complete shock, which I guess is good. Um, you know, it's almost a weapon in my disposal. Um, And something that contributes to that backlash and that shock and also is why I think I actually have a role to play is my, my existence as this person who grew up the way I grew up. You know, it's impossible to say that I've been brainwashed by the left-wing anti-Zionist, anti-Semites, or whatever, because I grew up so entrenched in this stuff. Like, you're really going to try and insinuate that I just don't understand the other side or something. It's completely absurd.
0: Have you been able to change anyone's mind? Yeah,
1: um, absolutely. Which has always been, you know, just such a powerful experience that keeps me going. I've had a few people... Um, sometimes I just notice small stuff. I'll just notice a person that I grew up with that I haven't seen since high school or college or whatever it is, start liking my social media posts. And I'll notice right away, oh, that person didn't used to like my posts and now they are. And that's a big shift. And every now and then someone and then will literally just message me, you know, straight up saying that, um, my posts have... Had an impact on them, which is just wild experience. You know, there's that clash of obviously being happy that you know I'm making a difference, um, and then almost like, wait, what? Like, who am I? Like, how is this happening? Like, don't listen to me, what? <laughs> but in May 2021, it happened a lot. I think that was a big radicalizing moment in May twenty twenty one where um Israel was bombarding um Gaza with rockets and there were you know there was a lot of soldier and police violence on the Temple Mount near Al Aqsa Mosque and that's when the ethnic cleansing happening in Jarrah really started to get a lot of mainstream media attention. Um, Which was also, you know, a reminder that I'm just, um, I have my special voice and my special way of contributing to things, but just part of the movement and, you know, part of the water on the rock that's going to help people
0: realize the reality. Now, are there ways for us to help your wrestling club?
1: Honestly, the biggest ways would be money for shoes, would be huge, or even shoes directly. And really, really the absolute biggest one would be a, an Arabic-speaking coach, Palestinian or otherwise, who wants to come and run a few practices. That would be the coolest thing in the world. And I think an amazing experience for the kids to finally be able to have, you know, a full, robust practice in their native language. So if anyone has any contacts with Palestinian wrestling coaches, then please make that connection
0: then where can people learn more about you, your work and your club and get in contact with you about possibly helping?
1: Yeah. You know, follow me on social media. I'm very active on Twitter and Instagram. My username on both is at Sam underscore Avraham. That's just Abraham, but with a V instead of a B. Um, and you know follow and subscribe to my substack that's a tr- uh, hopefully a way that I'll be able to make this lifestyle actually sustainable it's under my name Sam Stein and also you know follow other groups on social media and just stay involved and stay in the loop on that on that way if you know if you're Jewish or want to follow the Jewish resistance movement then Look up All That's Left on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or Center for Jewish Nonviolence are both amazing groups that are doing on-the-ground direct action. And if you want more, you know, the Palestinian angler resistance, you know, the people that are actually suffering under the struggle and that are, of course, leading the struggle, there are Palestinian groups to follow. You know, Youth Assuming is a Great. Palestinian group that is doing uh, a lot of different resistance work throughout the West Bank. And then there are pages like, you know, huge pages like I am Palestine and IMEU, that are just constantly showing news and footage and updates of what's happening on the ground.
0: Okay, I'll put all that in the show notes. Thank you, Sam, for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: If you like this episode and like what we do, support us on Patreon or Substack. We also have the Liberation Martial Arts program if you want to train with us from wherever you are. You'll find lots of techniques, exercises, theory, pedagogy, and even political theory. You can even get a monthly training session with me, either in person or online. Liberation Martial Arts also comes with Fighters Blue transcripts and breakdowns. Find all our links, including Sopop merch, at With that said, thanks for listening.